Carol Howard Merritt, she is a pastor um, who now lives along the East Coast, and she's a, a pastor and author. And she wrote a book called Reframing Hope, Vital Ministry in a New Generation. And in that book, she tells a great story. It's a story um, that's true of a pastor who was in southern Louisiana, and a hurricane had gone through, and the pastor was new, and he was just so broken up by the destruction that he perceived. He walked through his town, and the contents of people's lives were strewn everywhere. And as he walked, he actually saw a photo in bushes and debris and mud, and he saw just a portion of the photo, and it was a smiling face. And so he pulled that photo out, and it was a tattered and torn wedding photo. And he thought to himself, you know what? This is a family, right? Someone's going to want this. This is important. And so he kept it, and he had the thought of, you know, maybe I'll put it in the church, and maybe one of our members will claim it. But then he had a better idea. His idea was to open the church. And to encourage those people who have found debris, meaningful, especially pieces of photos, to bring them to church so that they could have kind of an exchange. And so in the basement of the church, they set out, you know, long tables and people came and they set out all of these photos that they had found in their place and looked through with the hopes of finding photos from those Um, finding photos of their own from those who had dropped them there. And it turned into this glorious event, right? Photos of, she writes, proud men standing in front of their cherry red Chevrolets and women in their Sunday best standing in front of blooming azaleas and children appearing to be cousins playing on lanes, uh, on playscapes. And what happened was, for years later, they talked about that church that opened themselves to us because it was a sharing of stories. It was getting to know one another. It brought the community together. And in the great work of pastoral interpretation, Merritt writes this. The church then becomes the means by which we interpret our broken lives and not the place to find God or to be perfect in life. You see, in her interpretation, um, people came looking at all those photos and they realized that God had been in their lives all along. And so the church wasn't the place to come to find God, but to actually do that work of recognition that God is always with us, always In the midst of all that's broken in our life, God is with us and we take God with us into our lives. And that's what this series revealed is about. That's what we're hoping to accomplish in this series. The big picture is that Jesus almost never went to the temple to worship, or any temple for that matter to worship. Jesus very rarely did that. When he revealed himself after his resurrection to his parishioners, to his disciples, he uh, didn't do that at the temple. He did that out in the world and in their lives. And 
he really made it pretty clear that it was out there that he would be. The struggle that was the church before Jesus and continues to be the church to now, and it's certainly how I was raised, the church of my childhood drove this into us, that this was God's house and you had to go there to find God, is that I believe that when I was a kid. But there came a point in my um, adult life where I said, this doesn't make any sense to me anymore. And I confess to you the irony that as your pastor, even though it's somewhat my job to make this a place that people want to come, I have never believed as a pastor that this is the place you come to find God. This is the place that you come to perhaps experience a portion of God. That in the beauty of community and the relationships that we have with one another, in the taking of the sacrament, in the participation in um, the holy and sacred sense of space, you have God experiences, but then you are to take them out. You learn here how to interpret what is happening in your world so that you can see God there in your day-to-day life. That's the whole point of why we worship and why we come. And again, this is biblical, And this is what our goal is for this series. So that irony of that this isn't the place you come to find God, (laughs) making that clear, that extends um, to a lot of irony within the text that we have. Bill read the story of the road to Emmaus, and it's a long story, and it's involved, and there are lots of components to it, and I'm sure you're very, very familiar with it because it is a story that um, gets told regularly this time of year, and it is a great, great telling of Jesus revealing himself as the Christ. But there are a couple of components that I want you to know. Hear the irony of a few things. One is that this story appears in no other place other than Luke, The other piece of irony is that we really have no idea where Emmaus is. With all the archaeology and all of the tools and texts and stuff that we have, no one's been able to identify uh, a location of Emmaus. And in part because the original texts are unclear, in one of the original texts it says that it is um, 60 stadia, and in the other it says 160 stadia from Jerusalem. Now that would translate or be the equivalent of it's either seven miles or 19 miles from Jerusalem. So we just don't know even where to look, if you will. And so that city has been lost and we have no idea. The pieces that I want you to look at um, and really consider are two, um, and they're often overlooked pieces of the story because there's so much that's significant in it. But I want you to hear a couple of things. First of all, at the beginning of the story, it says on the same day, which was Easter afternoon, a couple of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven or 19 miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. And then verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Notice that that's passive language. Their eyes were kept from. That seems to indicate that either the risen Christ himself or God wanted to prevent 
these two disciples from experiencing Christ as the risen Christ. And so I, I just want you to be aware of that, that it's hard to perceive and that sometimes our perceptions are impeded through no fault of our own. And then right after that, um, it says in verse 17, and he said, the risen Christ said to them, what are you discussing with each other while walking along? They stood still looking sad. Cleopas answered, are you not the only stranger who doesn't know what's happened in these days? And Jesus asked, what things? Now, hear those two questions. Those two questions are very simple, very straightforward. Cleopas then goes on to have a long discourse, which is followed only in summary form of the long discourse that Jesus has explaining himself to them and connecting himself to Scripture. But what I want you to take away from this story, something different than maybe what you normally take away, is that the journey begins in the human heart. Jesus came and was with them, and he didn't do anything other than a small prompt or a little nudge. Your journey is your responsibility. And I've told you that before, but this text really indicates that, right? They were kept from seeing, and yet the questions that they had in their own human heart, all Jesus had to do was go, what? And that should be the model for us all, right? That the journey is ours, and God prompts. So I'm trying to tell you today, and what I want you to take away from the story is, the journey is yours. Look for those places that God prompts. God in Christ Jesus is with you always. You just need to learn and see and be open to the prompts for further discovery. Well, I'll leave you with a story of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a practicing psychologist who was married in Vienna in the early 1940s. He lived near to his parents, his brother, and his sister. He and his wife and his entire extended family were captured um, by the Nazis and taken to a Jewish slum in which they lived within this walled place and were confined. His sister escaped and she was able to get out and make it to Austria. The rest of them were taken to concentration camps, ultimately, in which all of them perished except for Victor. Victor is seen here, I believe, the uh, third from the right, with his eyes closed. Victor benefited from his psychological training. He spent a lot of time paying attention. I think he went to six or eight concentration camps. Uh, he spent a lot of time paying attention to who lived and who died and why. And his strong feelings were that um, it was the search for meaning which kept people alive, trying to figure out what was happening to them and why. In 1945, after the war, he survived, he wrote his findings in a book that was translated some 12 years later into English and became an international bestseller. And it is kind of standard and core reading at many colleges and universities even today. How many of you have ever heard of it or read it? Several, yeah. And he postulates basically that the journey 
is in our hearts, and it is about the journey, not about the destination. And so the search for meaning is this continual journey that we're on. We're always searching for meaning. We're always searching for God. Viktor Frankl is a tremendously strong person of faith, and he continues to teach us to journey in our faith. But in his book, he tells this great story. It's a story about he had finally gotten to the end of, the, of his rope, and he was giving up. And he was kind of, to use today's language, he was about done. And a guard, at great risk to the guard's very self, gave him an extra portion and piece of bread. This is how he writes it. I remember how a foreman secretly gave me a piece of bread which, he knew mu- which I knew he must have saved from his breakfast ration. It was far more than a small piece of bread which moved me to tears at the time. It was the human something this man also gave me, the word and the look which accompanied the gift. Our world, my friends, needs from us a piece of human something. We are in a world of hurt in these days. Our black, brown, and Asian brothers and sisters feel so dehumanized, as do our law enforcement who feel misunderstood, who are called and asked to do way too much, which impacts their ability to succeed at times. There is so much pain between the grief and the loss in the pandemic to the struggle that some folks are getting a lot richer and some folks are getting a lot poorer. We are hurting now. And what's the way through? I believe it is that piece of human somethingness, that gift that we can give. When Jesus revealed himself to the two on the road to Emmaus, how did he make himself known? Through the breaking of the bread. When he was with his disciples on the final night, how did he give of himself in the meal a human something he gave for the spiritual benefit of the world so that we might always know that he is near and is with us and loves us. And here's where we have gotten it wrong for generations. You do not come here to get the meal or to have community so you can say, I've got this for me. We come here to receive this for one reason and one reason only so that we can be inspired, uplifted, and empowered to give the gift of our human something to a broken and hurting world. There's so much wrong and so little we can do about it, but you can do that. Give yourself in kindness and love and mercy to others. 
and may Christ be revealed through us. Amen.